Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. The faithful remnant, those who braved the wind and the waves this morning. It's really good to see you all. Why don't we stand to our feet? We're going to read some scripture together. Then I'm going to preach and then we'll have great hot chocolate and coffees together. Everyone all right with that? Good, and croissants. Oh, it's all happening here at Life Changes. Milton, Galatians chapter 4 will be on the screen behind us. Thank you, Sarah. <coughs> Phenomenal job. But let's read it together. This is how it says. It says, think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you're his child, God has made you his heir. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? You're trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I've become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you as we stand this morning. It's not just a posture of our uh, our flesh, but it's a posture of our hearts saying, Jesus, we give attention to your word. I thank you, Father God, that your word brings truth this morning, brings freedom, breaks bondages. I thank you, Father God, that today your word ushers in new seasons for every one of us of absolute freedom and trusting you. We thank you, God, for this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Wonderful to have you. Take a seat. It's really good to be together as we push on in the series Galatians. You've intro- I've introduced my parents to you. I've also got two brothers. I'm the youngest of three brothers. I've got an oldest one who's eight years uh, older than me, then one who's five years older than me, and uh, then I'm the baby. Uh, the, the, the last born, I'll say it in Afrikaans, but I failed a couple of weeks ago, so I won't. The last Lamaki. How's that, eh? I got it. I'm the last born, and uh, and but but being such a, the youngest of three brothers, my older brothers are my heroes. They are the ones that I, I just uh, growing up. I adored these guys. Whatever they did was cool. They even if when they wore string vests and they told me they were hip, hip and happening in the 90s, I believed them. I said, "You guys are cool." When they told me that 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 the the band InSync will be big forever, I believed them because they told me that when they said that song Informer. Anyone remember it? They said, that song will be the best song you will ever hear. I believe them. Whatever they did, I believe because they were my heroes. So much so that I went to all their sporting events and I watched them, cheered for them. Whenever they did anything, I was like, those are my brothers. They are the coolest guys in the world. And, and I promise you, they were. Still are to this day. But there was this moment where I came to watch the school athletics day, the in athletics. 
My brother had signed up as a 16-year-old. I was an 11-year-old, still junior school, but they're cheering him on. He had signed up to run the 5,000-meter race. So a lot of times around the track, a lot of times around the track. I worked out just 12 and a half times around the track. Am I correct, my maths? Do it in your head. It's, it's true. Anyway, 12 and a half times around the track, a lot of running. And my brother, who is not really a runner so much, or per se, he, he's more into the, the ball sports, but he had signed up willingly, and I was like, you know what? Usain Bolt is nothing compared to you, Simon. You're going to dominate this. And we got there to that day. Simon lined up on the, on the racetrack there, the 5,000-meter race, which, you know, usually just happens while people turn their attention to the high jump or the long jump because it's not that, like, exciting. It's just a lot of running. But for this time, everyone's eyes were on, on the starting line because as the gun went off, my brother Simon shot out of the blocks as if he was Usain Bolt. He was sprinting out of that first around the bend, and the other runners hadn't even started yet. They're like, well, we should go. And they started to go, but Simon went, and the whole crowd, they took the tension, went off the high jump onto this race, and they were like, look at him go. It was almost as if Simon had the soundtrack of Chariots of Fire and the Eye of the Tiger mixed together. Dun, 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 eye of the tiger. It was all happening. And he was going. And as he came around the bend and his house came around there, they were like, look, look, at, look at that white guy go. Look at him go. And he gave a wave victoriously to the crowd as he ran past, flexing his muscles. And I was screaming, running up and he said, go Simon. I was like, he's going to break the world record. First time he's ever run this race. It's amazing. And he was so screaming this. And, and as he went around the first bend, everyone was just amazed at this runner. Almost lapping the guys the first time around. The second time around, his eyes were a little bit more wild. The wave wasn't as flamboyant. It was more a flick as he came past the second time. And we knew something was wrong as his legs started to wobble. And the third time as he came around, it was almost as if a sniper had shot him in the back. As he hit the wall, the stitch hit him, and he collapsed on the floor dramatically, in Philip's dramatic fashion. And I thought, the young boy, I thought he was dead. I ran onto the field, onto the field crying, He's dead! He wasn't quite so much, but uh, it was a bit of an embarrassing moment for all concerned as the other runners came jogging by. What was that on about? <laughs> they went on with the race. And uh, we dragged him off to some, a little bit of mirth, a little bit of uh, sympathy applause, and that was the end of his running career. But um, it's a story that I love to remind myself of every now and again. <coughs> it's a true story. You can run it by my parents afterwards. They'll be outside to verify all my stories. But this one, I, I remember it captured so much about our human existence. My brother in that moment was the whole entire humanity in that moment, representing all of us in all our frailty. That is the great theologian Lady Gaga said, I live for the applause. I live for the applause, applause. I live for the way that you cheer and scream my name. Applause, applause, applause. You know that theologian, Lady Gaga, you all know it, eh? But as she said those words, I live for the applause, it's the nature of the human heart that we all live to hear somebody clapping and cheering on our name and saying, well done, you are doing so well. Whether it's the applause from a father, whether it's the applause from a, a teacher, the applause of a spouse, a friend, a boss, a pastor, somebody, anybody, please clap for me and tell me I'm doing well. We live for the applause. Robert Capon uh, a theologian and writer wrote this phrase. He said, the greatest temptation in life is to think that it is by further, better, and more aggressive living that we can find life. I'll read it again. The greatest temptation in life is to think that it is by further, better, and more aggressive living that we can find life. I'm the first one to admit this morning that I think all of us 
have a disease, an addiction to performance-ism. A new word I made up. We're addicted to performance-ism, trying hard, trying to prove ourselves and make our way and look good for others and living for the applause. And when we don't measure up, we, we join the other twin representative of this game called pretending I'm performing well. Does anyone know that one? Try hard, trying to get all my ducks in a row. When I don't, I just pretend I've got them all in a row. I want to tell you this morning that trying to get you to think that I am better than who I really am is exhausting. It's tiring. We all want to be right, respected, rewarded. I want to be right. I want to be respected. I want to be rewarded. I want to be right. I want to be respected. I want to be rewarded. And Martin Luther called this theology that crept into the church, he called it a theology of glory. That God is at the top and God meets us there at the top after our Herculean efforts with a wreath like Zeus going, well done. Very good job when what you did. That God meets us in our strength. That God is for the competent, for the strong, and he's for the overcomer. Martin Luther said the church had bought into this type of living for applause Christianity. And they'd, they'd molded into a theology. But that theology is, gets crumbled to his knees when we read this man Paul writing about Jesus and what he did for us. And Paul said that actually the gospel is so counter that. He said the gospel is not just a, a variation of it. It is the absolute antithesis of living for the applause of man because Paul said it is foolishness. It's not common sense that actually God meets us at the bottom in our weakness. But foolishness to who? To you and I? To this world? It sounds ridiculous, Christianity. It sounds hard to understand because we've all bought in hook, line, and sinker to the fact that our actions determine our identity. As much as we try and say we don't believe that, by, our, by my own heart, I see again and again that I believe that my actions determine the applause I'll get. The gospel says it's different. What happens too often is we turn Christianity into a glorified behavioral modification system. Well done. You've passed level one. He has level two. And, we, and, we, and if we fail, oh, just pretend. Just pretend you're doing well. We live in the thing. I've said it before in this series. We live in the, the Christianity of people, too many people. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Depending on the day and how we are doing, we think that is how God responds to us. And we really pray that we land on the last day before that bus hits us. No, the, the bus that all preachers love to tell you about. If you walked out here today and got hit by a bus, I was just always like, why is it a bus? Anyway, just a thought. But that bus, you know, you pray that you don't get hit by that bus. You pray that that day he loves me. Please, I hope. Is that what we've bought into? Is that the good news? I know, Olivia, I know. I want to tell you this morning, a conviction has settled in my heart. As a preacher, I'm more and more getting confidence in this. And I've had to learn this through, through a few years now, that actually my job is not to defend the church. As a preacher, get up and say, we need to fight for religious freedom. We need to defend the church. And I'm not saying this as a slight to anybody else, but I know my job is not to fight for the church. How do I know that? Before I was born, the church existed. Emperors rose up and said, the church must be squashed. They threw them to the lions and the church carried on. The church was, by scripture, the church will carry on and carry on and will get more and more glorious until the day he comes back, whether I say so or not. The church will stand. Can I tell you again, my job as well, I'm, I'm learning more and more, is not to police people's sins. 
What a boring, pathetic job. I tell you what my job is as a preacher, and you and I is together as preachers in the city. Believe it or not, we call to preach to the city. Is this not to defend the church, not to police people's sins, but to proclaim, announce the good news. The good news that there is another way, another king, another system that goes contrary to the system of the world. I want to help us with this this morning. So this morning, maybe you're here and you've been running fast and hard like my brother Simon, flexing those muscles, trying to impress everyone around you, trying to keep it going, but you feel your legs are getting a bit wobbly. You're like, I don't know how I can keep this on up for much longer. You're getting a bit tired. Maybe you've actually collapsed already. Your life is a shambles and you've got no more strength and you're going, I don't know where else to go. Or maybe you're here today and you've collapsed internally, but you're actually just pretending everything's okay. I'm still running hard. I promise. I'm the head and not the tail. I want to say, whether, no matter who you are in this story today, I really believe that the gospel is going to be good news today if you open your hearts to receive it. The gospel is the word of God to you this morning. Everyone all right with that? Good. Wonderful. So this morning, out of this text and, and the surrounding passages, we're moving on with our series. And I want to help us understand that God, in his wisdom, has basically two words to mankind. Throughout the whole scope of Scripture and the, the whole scope of, of, of humanity, God has two words to mankind. Here they are. Number one, the first word that God has to mankind is His law. The law of God. And I want to tell you the law of God that He put in place within the covenant, the, the, the Mosaic covenant all the way through the old, the law of God is perfect. It's righteous. It's holy. And I want to tell you this morning that Paul and myself, uh, as, as echoing Paul's words this morning, I'm not here to trash the law. I'm not here to say the law is rubbish. Because the, the scripture tells us the law is perfect. It was from God. But here's the thing. What Paul aims to do as we're reading the scriptures and in the, the preceding scriptures in chapter 3, Paul is not trashing the law. He's giving us the right purpose of the law. Something can be beautiful and perfect, but if you use it wrongly, it's no longer beautiful and perfect. I can say, this spade is amazing. It's the most beautiful spade in the world. But if I start using it to, to try and hit people with, it's no longer beautiful and perfect. Its design was different for what it's being used for. So the law, what Paul is trying to do here, is he's showing us the purpose of the law. And when I say the law, just to clarify, I'm not meaning just the Ten Commandments. I'm not, also not just meaning the basic um, Mosaic law. I'm not just meaning all the, the, the oral traditions that came along with the, the Mosaic law. I'm also meaning the notion inside every human being that exists that if I do this and I do this equals God will bless me. The notion that if I do this and I don't do that, God will bless me. The systems that we set up in our heart that think that if we do these things, God will bless us. God is, Jesus is working this equation out of us as people here this morning in this series because we are realizing more and more that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You see, Galatians 3 verse 19, if you flick back a page in your Bible, go read it. Paul clearly expresses what the law was given for. It says in Galatians 3:19, it says, why then was the law given? Good question, Paul. He says, it was given alongside the promise to show people their sin. The law was given to show you your sin. 
We've said it again and again in the series that the law is like an MRI scan machine. You know the MRI scan machines? That when you're sick, you go into the machine, and the the machine will tell you as you go through it, you go in and in and in, and it'll come out and tell you your left vertebra is broken. That's why you've got the pain there. Ah. Now the problem is that machine is designed to tell you that where you are sick. That machine was not designed to make you better. Even if you say, yeah, but I'm going to spend three hours in the MRI scan machine today. I'm just going to sit in here. I'm going to go through twice, three times. You can go through it a hundred times. That machine's purpose is not to make you better. It's to tell you where you are sick and say you need to go to the specialist to bring healing to that area. You see, the law is in its design was there to, was made to tell you and I, here's the standard. This is where you and I fall short. The law is supposed to prescribe where we fall short. And in, in, in the colloquial language, this is the law's job. The law's primary job was to stand and yell loudly over every single one of us. You can't do it! How do I know that? Because I read a man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth, of heaven, son of God. It says in Matthew 5, verse 7, it's a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. He arrives and he says this. He starts quoting the law to the people. A people who had been trusting the law for their salvation, for their blessing, their favor from God. The law that was determining who's in and who's out. And the way they got the applause from the people. Look how amazingly he's keeping the law. Wonderful. God must really love you. Jesus comes to those people and in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. You have heard it said. That you, if you, that you, it's a sin to commit adultery with another person. He said, you've also heard it said that if you kill someone, that is murder. They're like, yes, 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 yes. Good Jesus. Jesus is preaching good here. Mm, get to those murderers and adulterers. Yes, good. Amen. Then Jesus says, I tell you that if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. The amen's got a bit quieter. Oh, this Jesus, what isn't he the carpenter? He says, again, I tell you that if you've told your brother, I hate you, you're a fool, you've committed murder in your heart. Now they're like, oh, this is, I don't like where this is going. It's a bit uncomfortable, Jesus. And then Jesus says to him, actually so much so, if your eye has caused you to sin, cut it out. Rather go into heaven with one eye than going to hell with both eyes. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Rather than go into heaven with one hand than with both hands. And everyone grumbles. Here's my question. What was Jesus doing in this moment? Because we're people who believe in Jesus, don't we? Am I right? Good, good, good. That Jesus' words are true. The problem I have this morning is I don't see many one-eyed people here. I'm just looking. Any two-handed, any one-handed people here who've cut off the, severed the other limb? Anyone? No. So either, I've got two choices to believe about you and me, either you guys are amazing, amazingly spiritual people who have really been so good and have never even looked to the left or the right, you've been so perfect, then I'm amazed you guys should preach. Or, you're liars. (laughs) Or, you're liars, that something is wrong and you're going, no, 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 not me. We've got to take Jesus' word seriously, don't we? So what do we do with this passage? What was Jesus doing in this moment? Jesus in this moment was coming with the law and actually saying to a people who had thought that they got, they said we get right by keeping the law and the law, that if we do this plus this, then God will bless us and, be, and will give us applause. Yes. He said, actually, 
you're using the law wrong. The law, Jesus puts the law on steroids at this moment, takes the bar not just to hear where man can do the hokey pokey underneath it or get close to it. He takes it to a whole nother level and says, none of you can make it. You're all disqualified. None of you can have pride in your ability to make this thing happen. Jesus in this moment is taking the standard to a whole nother level and saying, and praying that they get to the place where they go, we can't do it. If you look at scripture, there's a man named the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, easy, keep the Ten Commandments. The guy goes, I've done that since birth. Done. Done, I'm in. And Jesus goes, okay, cool. One other thing, give everything you have away to the poor. The man's like, oh, and he says, the man went away sad. You read that scripture, what is Jesus doing? Is Jesus giving us, saying that if you keep the Ten Commandments and give everything to the poor, then you can get into heaven? No. He's going off this man's heart. He knows that this man has put the equation in his heart that if I do this plus this plus this, then I get blessed. And Jesus is trying to pull that whole sum down by saying, you can't do it. Because the law will always bring the standard more. The law always gets more. It's just as soon as you get a hold of this, there's another rung to go. And it's another level, another level, till we all get tired and collapse. That is the purpose of the law. The law was given to bring us to the end of ourselves. Because I want to tell you this morning that God's office is at the end of our rope. That God begins when we come to the end of ourselves. And I pray this series, this series has almost been trying to release our hands of trying and performing and, and, and achieving. I tell you, the law produces sorrow at the revelation of sin. But it has no power to remove your sin. I tell you, the law accuses you, but it cannot acquit you. The law crushes you, but it cannot cure you. The law defeats you, but it cannot deliver you. The law exposes you, but cannot exonerate you. The law makes you face your sin, but cannot forgive you. The law will kill you, but it cannot make you alive. The law puts you on a treadmill and says you're weak, imperfect, and you have to run faster. Run faster, do more, try harder. But we always will be falling short until that stitch comes, the hamstring goes, and we're on the floor. The law was put in place. Why? like an MRI machine, to send us to the only one who could heal us. The, the law was, Jesus raised the bar so high to saying, would you, would you put aside your attempts to get the applause and run to me, the only one who can save you? The law was always there, not as a substitute, but it was there to push us to God. Good news, eh? We've been doing this series, and we see the Galatian response, the Corinthian response. In the, in the book of Corinthians, the Corinthian response, the church there, heard the good news of Jesus. We said, we love Jesus. And they said, Does that, that means that we can love Jesus if he's taking care of everything. Then we can just do whatever we like. We can sin and go wild. So their equation was Jesus plus sin equals good. And Paul's like, no, no, by no means it's not now to throw away. That's no, that's a, a pseudo form of freedom, taking hold of something else. But the Galatian church went the other way and said, no, no, that's terrible. The, the equation should be Jesus, that's good, plus a little bit of law never hurts anyone. Just, just circumcision, just a few ceremonies, a few Sabbaths, a few, a few Jewish laws. Let's just add a little bit. But as we're learning that the scriptures tell us again and again here, it says, Galatians 3 verse 10 says, but those who depend on the law to make them right with God, are under his curse. For the scriptures say, curse is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in his law. Verse 11 goes on and says, it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. I'll say it this way, live by the law and you will die by the law. 
Because the law is perfect. The law is holy. The law is righteous. But its job, if you're trying to be validated by it, it will disqualify you every single time. If you want to know why am I laboring under condemnation and guilt, I might suggest maybe that you have been you have living and you've fallen for the trap that you're living for the applause. You're living for your efforts. And you're saying, my, my ability to feel good about who I am and try, trying to win favor with God is how well I am doing. Because the Bible tells us there's no condemnation now of those in Christ Jesus, comma, those who walk by the Spirit and give no trust to the flesh. The other word for the flesh that Paul uses interchangeably is the law. There's no condemnation for only one group of people, those in Christ Jesus and who are walking by the Spirit, and those who don't trust the law for their righteousness. Good news! Come on! Everyone all right, eh? Good, good, good. It's really wonderful. Good, just checking. Here is the secret, and we're going to shift to the second word that Jesus speaks to mankind. First, he speaks law. Secondly, he speaks his son named Jesus. The final word from heaven spoken, the greatest word for you and I, is the fact of this, a whole series. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You get him, you get it all. Here's the, th- the kicker for you and I. We trust, and I believe in, in, in Christi- Christendom all across the world, there's a, there's a conviction in most denominations that, that Jesus has paid completely for our sins. Past. Yeah. And that if we die and get hit by that bus, you know that one? We have eternity with him. And he was like, yeah, that sounds good. But then we often approach the little gap in between called life, and we say, yeah, he's paid for my sins, and I've got eternity with him. But we think Jesus, for this little gap called life, has got a whip over us saying, yeah, but for this one, it's up to you. Come on, boy. Run harder. Run faster. Jump, jump. But no, we, we're buying into something different that says Jesus plus nothing. Dramatic pause for you. So what is Jesus doing? This is for us. I want us to press into this understanding of the now, uh, now power of the gospel that's here for you and I today in this moment, in this venue here for us to receive. But Paul, what he is doing is he is not, he's not disqualifying. He's not saying now, you don't, there's, no, there's no ramification. You don't have to live like you can do whatever you want. What Paul is trying to do is get the order correct for us because what happened for humanity is that we took the fruit and we made it the root. So we thought the way to get a godly life was to try and live a godly life. When Jesus, he's saying, no, 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 you've exchanged the two, that you have to get the root right to get the fruit right, because this is what happens. Grace inspires what the law demands. The law prescribes good works, but only grace can produce them. The law is there to say, here's the standard, reach up to it. But if you go to the law trying to get there, you're always going to fall short. Because the law is always more, more, more. Especially drive us to a Savior who fuels us with His grace, which allows us by default to reach the standard when we place ourselves in Christ. There's a story in John chapter 8, and this is huge for me. There's a story of a, a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. So I always think about that saying, the guys who caught her must have been really peeping toms. Because how do you catch someone in an act of adultery? I saw her. It's a bit weird, but anyway, just an aside, the way I read scripture. So they catch this woman in the act of adultery, and they drag her out. The Pharisees, the keepers of the law, they pull her out. They're trying to catch Jesus. They're putting Jesus on trial. They throw the woman in the dust at his feet. I can imagine she's semi-nude. She's looking embarrassed. It's, it's, she's been caught out, and, and she hasn't been a chance to even gather her clothes, and she's trying to cover up, and she's weeping in the dust. She knows she's in trouble. And the, 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 law, the law keepers, are, are they so they cock a hoop with joy at this. Like, we've got Jesus now. 
So they said, Jesus, what are you going to do with her? The law says, stone, if she's an adulterer, she must be stoned. What do you say? And they're like, Jesus, if he goes, if he stones her, he'll lose the favor of the people. But if he doesn't, they'll say blasphemer because he's going against the law. You can't go against the law. So Jesus, I love it, is not embarrassed. He's not worked up in the presence of sin. He's not freaked out. He's not, oh, I don't know what to do in this moment. Sin is, oh, he's, he's not worried about that moment. What he does is Jesus goes down, bends down in the sand and starts to write out some, something. The scripture doesn't tell us what. Maybe was he writing down the names of the people around there and the sins that they were doing? We don't, we don't know. We can just imagine. But as Jesus did this, Jesus stands up and he says this, this line, this cutting line. He says to all of them around there, Cool. Yeah, you're right. The law says that if she's committed adultery, you must stone her. Cool. Like, yeah, we've got him. Goes, okay, but one catch. Whoever doesn't have sin, whoever's never sinned against the law, then you can throw the first stone. Cool. Go for it. And he stands back. And says one by one, starting with the older to the younger, the wiser, older guys got it first. Says they dropped their stones. They all started to grumble and, and move away in dissent because they realized they'd been exposed in this moment. And they left away. And Jesus carries on writing in the sand. The woman looking around nervously. What's happened? And Jesus looks up and says, oh, there's, there's no one left to, to throw a stone. The only one left who could have stoned her, Jesus, was still there. Because he was the only one who was perfectly righteous. And, and she says, no, they've all left. And he says, cool. If none of them condemn you, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Here's the kicker. Here's the big thing. Understanding that what the Jesus' words there. I think in our Christianity, if that moment happened, dramatic, I probably would have done. If I confess, I'd say to her, listen, cool, we dodged a bullet, okay? We got out of that one. Lawyered. Whew, thank goodness. Thank goodness I watched some suits last night to get us out of that one. Listen, though, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Come on. Please, you got this. Go and stop your adultery. Stop it now. And then let's have a meeting in two weeks' time. We'll talk it through. And then if you've done well and put in practice what I've told you to do, then you can be free. You can go free. That's what I would do. But Jesus, his words, he says this. You are not condemned. Go and sin no more. What he was not, he was not, he was setting her free, but then he wasn't putting conditions to the freedom. He was saying, now you're allowed to walk away from your sin. You've been set free from your sin. Set free from the accusation of the law, but also set free from your sin. The scripture tells us grace teaches us to say no. But the problem is we all want to run to teaches us to say no, but it's actually saying no. Grace teaches us. That's the thing that inspires freedom. Run to the only one who can heal you. Run to the only one who can free you. And watch by the, as you get the root right, the fruit falls in place. That's why Galatians is written like that. One, two, three, four, saying you're dead to the law. So chapter five says, here's the fruit of the spirit. Because once you get that, the fruit comes. You've never seen an apple tree going, I must produce apples. Ah, oranges this week. Damn. Back to the AA meeting. I produced our oranges this week. You know, guys, it's really been a tough week for me. I just thought vitamin C. I apologize. No, no, no. Apple trees, because of their root system, produce apples. Spirit-filled believers who say, actually, my roots is not my efforts. It's in His grace. Produce graciousness. Produce self-control. Produce that when you get your system right. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's good preaching. Thank you.
I want to land in this, these moments and say that the problem for me, and I know this in my own heart, is that we have made the blessings of God conditional. He said it a million times, but he's not the Godfather. Let's make an arrangement. If you do this, I'll do this for you. No, he's Father God. He's Father God. And it's not the new covenant is not a covenant of ifs and buts. It's a, co- a covenant of promises. Promises based on his obedience, not yours. So run to the one who's obedient. Run to the one who's perfect, whose sacrifice was enough. Run to that one, not to your attempts and your efforts. Because here's the greatest news of all, is that Jesus is the blessing of the Father. Jesus is the blessing of the Father. That's why I hate and I abhor the prosperity gospel that says, if you come and you do this and do that, you'll get help, wealth, and freedom. Because actually it's just another subtle form of law. If you tithe, he'll hold back the enemy from you. I'm like, no. As if God needs my money. I really hope they pay the, the tithes this month. The heavens are a little bit, the streets of gold are looking tatty. No, no, no. Can I tell you this amazing thing for us? Is that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't need your money. He needs you free. So here's the understanding for you and I, even in that thing, is that he knows that we need to give. He knows that we need to give to be free of thinking that if I just get all my money and all that, then I'll be secure. So no, trust me. And giving is a habit that we do to trust him. It's the root, not the fruit. I mean, it's the fruit, not the root. I was testing you. One person passed. Well done. You see what happened here? Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus raised the bar so high that actually only one man could achieve it. You know that Jesus raised it so high, and he kept raising high. If you cut out your eye, cut off your hand, he raised it so high. And again, Matthew, John 8, everyone walked away. He raised the bar so high. Why? Because only one man could, and his name was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life of obedience. He ticked every box. He was the only one who went to the cage of legalism and said, it is finished. Every, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it completely. Jesus knows the enemy is a legalist. So he went and dotted every I, crossed every T. He obeyed the law perfectly and he died as our perfect righteousness. And the scriptures also tell us again that he died as our perfect righteousness and he became the curse. He did what we could not do. And he took what we could never keep for ourselves. He took the curse and he put himself so that we could become his righteousness. There is no other way to get his righteousness. There's no other way. It's not let me try a little bit harder. Let me attend a course. Let me strive harder. Let me beat myself up. No, no, no. The only way is to trust in Jesus. It's not a righteousness required. It's a righteousness supplied. Because of this notion, can I tell you today, if you're a believer in Christ, yes, you live under an open heaven with God's favor pouring out on you. Just by believing in Christ, you have access to the favor of God, that actually the heavens are open. So much so, a pet peeve of mine, there's a great song that we sang in the, in the 90s and 2000s, you might still sing it at home now, bless you, it says, let it rain, let it rain, open the floodgates of heaven. You know that song? I don't like it. Or I should say, I've changed it to let it rain, you've opened the floodgates of heaven. Because subtly we are singing, open the floodgates of heaven. And then the band will play louder and we'll cry out, please open the floodgates, please open up, please God. If we sing louder, come on, louder, more keys, more singing, and maybe God will answer us. Your worship did not open the heavens. It never will. 
Your prayer life will not open the heavens. Your tithing will not open the heavens. Your attending church will not open the heavens. The only thing that did was the blood of Jesus. That was the only thing that was enough. And the heavens were open, torn from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, not earth to heaven, not living for applause. But God said, I'm doing this for you. I'll meet you in your weakness at the bottom and the heavens will never be shut again. Wow, good news. Let this fuel our hearts this morning. So I land with these thoughts that cheap grace isn't the problem. People, oh, greasy grace, cheap grace. I'll tell you this, it's cheap law that's the problem. Because thinking that anything we can do could add to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus is the blasphemy. People think, oh, don't make it out sound like sin's not a big deal. Sin was a huge deal. So much so that Jesus died for it. And if you think you can pay a bigger price than his death, then you're the blasphemer, not me. We've got to remind ourselves these things again and again. Because this morning I want to tell us, everybody in this room, including my fickle heart, that your identity is in his strength. Your performance is not yours it's his. Your perfection is not yours. It's his. It's, it's, it's his righteousness, not yours. We have to unhook our hearts from these things. And here the great news for you and I is this thing that we talk about this morning that I'm preaching to you and I is called the good news. News is a proclamation of what has already been done. It's not good advice I'm offering you. A good hint, good suggestions. I'm telling you, good news, which is done. You get to choose to believe it and, and attach your heart. Say, I'm all in on this Jesus plus nothing. Which is a daily journey to refresh yourself and bath yourself and, and cover yourself in the grace of Jesus Christ that produces righteousness. Because I tell you again and again that the good news is still good news for the poor. It's still good news for the broken. It's still good news for the blind. It's still good news for the hungry. It's still good news for the captives. So much so. I want to read two scriptures for you and I this morning to bring this all together. Isaiah 61. Please, Sarah. We are a great team, Sarah. Very nice. This is the great prophet Isaiah, quoted in, in, a lot of times in, in church meetings, but this is where it comes originally from. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger or vengeance against their enemies. Wow, cool scripture. Good one. The man named Jesus Christ walks into the arena years later. And let's go to the next one. It's Luke chapter 4, found in Luke chapter 4. As he's come through the temptation and through the desert. He's performed completely perfectly. He arrives on the scene. And it says this, Jesus, unrolling the scroll, reads from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Did you notice the difference? Jesus, who was the word, who was there from the beginning, who will never go against his word, who is the one who is the completed word of God, quotes Isaiah 61 faultlessly, but leaves out the last sentence of verse 2. 
The last sentence is to proclaim the day of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God against his enemies. Jesus says to proclaim the day of the Lord's favor, full stop. Rolls it up, says today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Why? Because the vengeance and anger of our God was consumed completely in the man named Jesus Christ. The good news is Jesus walks into our stories and not saying he has good news for those who perform, but bad news for those who don't. He walks into a story saying, this is good news to the poor. Good news to those who have fallen. Good news to those who have run because Jesus have run their race and fallen short. Because can I tell you, Jesus ran his race to perfection. He ascended that hill. He lived a life, 33 years of perfect obedience to the Father where everyone else had failed. He died a death, a horrifying death on the cross and he yelled out, it is finished. Went into the grave, rose again victoriously three days later. And can I tell you, at that moment in heaven, a standing ovation began. And the applause of heaven rang out. And they said, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain and taken away the sins of the world. And the, a chorus of angels and demons were shrieking in, in despair. As angel upon angel and legions of angels and heaven and the elders threw down. And the living creatures started to scream in applause and said, worthy is the champion. Jesus. Applause rang out for the only one who deserves it. And can I tell you, the Bible tells us that everyone, when one sinner repents and trusts Jesus alone, it says heaven erupts in applause and praise and a party. If you want to know the applause of heaven, if you're living for the applause of man, living for the applause of somebody saying, well done, I want to tell you, the applause of heaven resounds over you, not because of your efforts or your attempts or trying harder. The applause of heaven rings out of you saying, he trusted me. Jesus plus nothing. Let's pray. I don't know about you, for me, reading these scriptures out of the Galatians has really gripped my heart afresh. I thought I had these doctrines down, I must be honest. But as I read them, I see my life falls again and again, sways into the cage of legalism, sways into that what I do leads to how God blesses me, how God will applaud me, how man does. And it's subtle, it creeps into my marriage, creeps into the way I do relationships. But the gospel is offensive, and we need to understand it and claim it. And I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're saying, actually, today I, I, I want to take hold of the gospel afresh in a full way and apply it to my life in every area, I'm going to ask you just to stand briefly so I can pray for you. I'm the first one standing. But please stand. I would love to pray for you. Sometimes we, we stand because we're at war with our flesh. We're at war with it. The, the flesh wants to go after the applause of man, wants to go after the tick box. But we have to say, no, I come and lay my life down at Jesus' feet. Father, I pray for all of us standing here. I pray right now in this room, would you come and pour out your favor? Would you pour out your spirit upon all, all your sons and daughters this morning, reviving, awakening hearts to you? That actually they're saying, I'm going all in like a poker player. I'm going all in on Jesus. I'm not holding anything back. I'm not answering a, holding an ounce back. I'm not holding any safety kitty for a rainy day. I'm going all in on Jesus. I'm, I, this offends me that actually the only thing that Jesus, that God accepts is perfect righteousness. So I'm saying it's not up to me. It's up to you, Jesus. I pray into every marriage, into every father, mother, into every uh, boss here, to every student, to every employee. I pray, God, would we respond as a people who know Jesus plus nothing deep in our souls. Thank you, Father, right now that you're setting us free.
from the law. We're coming alive to you. Just want to give you a little picture. I thought that was amazing. Don't stop. Yesterday, I got a little four-year-old boy. He's just turned four. I saw him walk into the kitchen, and he started moving the one chair to the cupboard. I said, boy, can I help you? He said, no. Okay. So he moved the chair to the cupboard, stuck up, stuck his hands way before where he couldn't reach, and he tried to get to, and he pulled everything out, like everything on the floor. What ends up happening? In trouble. This morning, that same little boy walks up, and he's a little bit sleepy. And I've been up for a little while. He walks down to me, but he wants to go get cereal, and it's in the same place. And instead of moving the chair and going, he just does this to me. So I pick him up. We get the cereal. We come down. There's no chaos. There's no trouble. I've been reminded as we're in the series of Galatians, and the song is gripping my heart. It's a song I used to sing as a little kid when I was four years old in Sunday school at the Full Gospel Tabernacle. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And at the center of all of this is us often thinking, I got this. I got this. And I just, I've got that song in my head, and I want to put it in your head, and I want you to sing it on the way home, and I want you to sing it on the way to church, on, on the way to work, on the way to everywhere. Jesus loves me. This I know. What do you know? See, my little boy thought he knew he could get to the top. Didn't end well. There's one thing I know, and I don't know it because of how I wake up tomorrow morning. I don't know it because Gabe preached well. I don't know it because someone said it once. I know it because his word promises it to me. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Could we be like little children that our response is actually just this? I struggle, promise you. And then, and then when I don't do it, I think I want to do it. Allow that stuff to come off because the gospel wants to come alive and God wants to be the central desire of our hearts every second. We thank you for these things, Jesus. You're working in us as a community.